Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Catherine Hiller. She is the author of Just Say Yes, a Marijuana Memoir. We're going to bring her on in just a second. I'm going to start with a little uh, blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Catherine Hiller, is with us. I'm going to bring her on right now. Catherine, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm fine. It's it's a little warm right here where I am, which is on the East Coast. Very muggy day, but, um, you know, some people say that joints are the poor man's air conditioner. So there you are. It's one of those wonderful plants, cannabis, that's good for so many things. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to write this book? Well, I thought that no one had written it. You know, writers are always attracted to the new subject. And in looking at, you know, the marijuana bookshelf, I didn't see anything like what I intended to write, which was a story of long-term usage and enthusiastic usage. And I thought that if people realized that a productive individual had been using for many years on an almost daily basis, they might form a different opinion of cannabis. And that's what I wanted to do. That's my main message here, which is to, you know, to show that there are different ways that people can use it, but even if you use quite a bit of it, it wouldn't harm you. Mm-hmm. How long have you been using and how long on a daily basis? Um, well, I started as a, as the way most people start, the time most people start if they're going to start, and of course many people stop after that, but as a freshman in college, that was my introduction to it. And I say as an undergraduate, it probably wasn't daily, but by the time I was in graduate school, it was getting close to that. I mean, a lot of people in the 60s and 70s were smoking, so it was just a, a social thing to do as well as anything else. I've always been somebody who rather enjoys it when I'm alone as it sort of gets me into my particular headset and um, spurs creativity. But at those times, it, it was around a lot. So it was you know, easy to be a daily smoker just by having friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, rec- I recall those times, too. Um, you know, I first smoked it in uh, 1980, um, and that was when I started... Uh, college that was my freshman year when i was 20 mm-hmm. i was started mm-hmm. a little late um and uh, then i went to japan for uh well six years it wound up being and basically i did not smoke any in japan you know it was not very available there it's extremely illegal there it's uh, yeah. long prison sentences uh and the japanese like methamphetamine anyway they it's all <laughs> over the place well, they have um, yeah. such hard hours. They have to have something to keep going, right? Well, you know, they they have a very strong work ethic, so it fits very well uh, with their social beliefs to have cranked to crank them up to do a lot of work. You yeah. know, I knew I knew a crank dealer in Japan, and I said, "Can you get me marijuana?" He said, no, I don't know where to get that. You know, mm-hmm. the only people that had that were the uh, GIs uh, uh, in the military bases basically it was uh you know i did have one friend that had a joint and i did smoke one time there and i think that was it um and to make a long story short i got back to the united states six years later tried it again it was making me severely depressed and i noticed that even before when i'd been smoking during the first year when i was 20 i'd often got uh, depressed instead of elated afterwards and you know, basically, I've not smoked since 
then because, you know, I tried three times in a row of smoke. Wow. Got, got really depressed every time. I had to drink yeah. alcohol to get to sleep because it given me <laughs> insomnia, too. Um, and well, yours I, is a very uh, atypical reaction, the insomnia part, anyway. Is. Um, very unusual, but listen, such as, you know, many people have different reactions, and if people have tried it once or twice and they don't like cannabis, well, they should certainly not do it again. Why should they? Um, you know, I un- <laughs> I was very hopeful when I heard about this drug called ecstasy. Who wouldn't want to try something like that? And mm-hmm. I tried it twice, and it was just dreadful for me. I mean, dreadful. I hated every second of it. <coughs> Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there you go, you know. Well, I, I can't explain why. I just felt very, very tense and unhappy, and I couldn't move my legs, and the whole thing was scary and awful. So it just goes uh, to show you there's a lot of variability in how each of us reacts to various substances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, did you test the ecstasy? Are you sure it was really ecstasy? Yes, yes. Apparently it was pharmaceutical grade. Um, the person I got it from made a great show of telling me this, and it was certainly wrapped in a very official-looking package. Yes. <clears throat> There's so much of the ecstasy that's floating around is uh, not ecstasy at all. It's uh, one of these uh, new uh, uh, new uh, synthetic drugs, uh, yeah. bath salts or something. You know, yeah. it's some crazy version of amphetamine. No, I, I'm aware of that. I, so I was, I was mm-hmm. careful. Actually, both times I was assured that it was pure and good and excellent, but both times it was not very good for me. Um, I do mm-hmm. think it's wonderful how it raves and so on now. there. Many places have these harm reduction booths or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, they have some name, but where they can test whatever product, you know, a young person might be ingesting at the rave. And that's great. You know, I think that's terrific. Yeah, there's a couple organizations that are doing that. One is called Dance Safe. Uh, yes, we've that's had their it. People, that's the one I've heard of. Yeah. Yeah, we've had their people on our show uh, a couple times, and there's there's another one I can't recall their name right now, but there's another organization that's also doing testing. Um, yeah, getting back to uh, marijuana, I know my reaction was very atypical, um, and you know. I'm in favor of full legalization of marijuana, actually full legalization of everything. That's another uh, thing, though. But it's not because I want to smoke it when it's legalized, because I don't want to. But it is just so stupid to make something, to keep this substance illegal that's rather harmless. And in my uh, business, my, my life's work is actually with alcohol, and I see so many people that can benefit by, you know, switching off of alcohol onto marijuana, especially, yeah. you know, people that have severe withdrawal when they when they drink. And, you know, it's crazy to me that they can't uh, have a substance available to switch to that would do them much less harm. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. There's, there are very many ways to make a case for marijuana legalization and, um, one of them is, of course, that it's it's a very benign substance, and the second one is it's beyond benign for certain people. It has so many medicinal uses, and those uses are best obtained through smoking. I mean, people get the quickest and the best effect smoking it rather than, you know, having it artificially put in a pill. And then, of course, the third reason why it's a very important topic is uh, how unfairly the law is applied so that, you know, two-thirds of our prisoners for drug offenses are blacks and Hispanics, whereas um, there's no greater use among blacks and Hispanics than there is among white people. So, you know, it's it's very, very unfairly administered. Mm-hmm. And to me, the fourth issue is a human rights issue. When did the government get the right to decide what I can put in my own body? I mean, we finally got the government... That is interesting. That that really is rather new. I guess, you know, at, before 1937, were there prohibited chemicals beyond alcohol? You know, a brief flirtation with prohibition, which didn't do very well. But be, before and with other sorts of substances, were, were there government laws? Well, it's interesting. Um, uh, Constitutionally, I mean, if you read the Constitution, you look at the Tenth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment says any powers not granted to the federal government by this Constitution are reserved for the states or the people. And there's no mention of drugs, uh, of course, in the Constitution, 
there's no mention of marriage either in the Constitution. These were all considered uh, up to the states, to the min- municipalities, localities, counties, cities. Uh, this this is not the job of the federal government. <coughs> but it's and not even first... the, my my question is since when did it become the part of any government? I mean, we do realize that okay, mm-hmm. marriages maybe we want governmental you know approvals there because it you know gives you various rights. But when mm-hmm. did this notion come about that we have to stop people from ingesting certain substances? It's probably a 20th century idea. It is 20th century, and I'm going to uh, get you there very quickly. Um, in 1914, they passed the Heroin Narcotics Tax Act, and uh, it was passed. The people that passed it wanted prohibition, but they said it was a tax act instead to sneak it through Congress because prohibition laws are unconstitutional. So they snuck the tax act through, and they then the pro- uh, they, wait, wait a minute. Excuse me, Ken. They made it a tax act because they thought it was unconstitutional to make it illegal? Congress would never have approved a prohibition law without an amendment. That's what we did with alcohol prohibition. We passed an amendment yeah, so that the yeah. federal government could legally prohibit alcohol. And then we passed a repeal amendment so that the government would legally allow you to drink again. I mean, you can't change the Constitution without an amendment. But there would never been an amendment about, and now we're going to make it legal to prohibit these certain drugs. We've never had that amendment. We never had that amendment. We had a tax law, and uh, uh, initially under the tax law, there were several people, there were many people that had uh, dependents on opiates, and the doctors would prescribe them opiates, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to keep them from going through withdrawal. And uh, someone uh, in the federal government decided to start arresting the doctors for prescribing opiates and saying this is malpractice to give addicts opiates. And Mm -hmm. it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled, okay, it's illegal for doctors to prescribe opiates to addicts, and we'll put them in prison if they do. And that's when the tax law changed into uh-huh. a prohibition law with that Supreme Court ruling. Um, but that's not what our Constitution says. Our Constitution says it's up to the states what yeah. they want to prohibit or what they don't want to prohibit. Um, you know, there, there are some problems with the Constitution, as I said, with marriage, too. It's up to the states under the Constitution. I would like to see an amendment passed to make uh, you know gay marriage legal. That would be the right way to do it. Um, I would like to see an amendment passed to a limit. Why would that be better than a Supreme Court ruling saying they recognize gay marriage as legal? Um, The Supreme Court doesn't have the power to make that ruling. Well, they just did, didn't they? What did they just do Uh, last week? uh, Well, the the federal government's been pretty much ignoring the Constitution uh, since about (laughs) 1914. For the past hundred years, they've really not paid any attention. Because all these federal drug laws are unconstitutional. All the Nixon laws are unconstitutional. Uh, and Slinger's 1937, I believe, marijuana laws are all unconstitutional. Um, you know, our federal government has completely ignored, been ignoring the Constitution for the last hundred years. Anytime they decide they want more power, they just pass a law to give themselves more power. They don't go through the process of getting an amendment, which takes a two-thirds majority vote instead of just simple majority yeah. Well, well, this is this well, is very interesting. The the sort of the legal basis or the non or the the lack of basis for these rules is is very interesting. Have you made your case? I, I guess you have in a paper or in a book or something, right there, Ken? Oh, I've written about this topic a lot. I had an article recently on rehabs. dot com. It was titled uh, "The Human Rights Model of uh, Drug Use and." drug problems. And, you know, it's, to me, the, the job of the government, the federal government, uh, or any any state local government, is not to prevent drug use, but to prevent drug-related problems, because most people use without becoming dependent, without having problems. Um, yeah. That includes opiate users. About uh, 20% become dependent, about 80% don't. They remain That's an extraordinary statistic. It really is. Um, how about for crack cocaine? Is it that same kind of percentage of people who become dependent or not? 
Yeah, roughly uh, for most uh, pharmaceuticals, for most drugs, it's about 20% become dependent and about 80% do not. That includes uh, crack cocaine, that includes marijuana, includes uh, painkillers. I, I think it's a lot less with marijuana. I, th- I thought it was only 9% with marijuana. Mm, not according to uh, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is done by SAMHSA. Um, it's comparable. It's maybe 18%. It's, it's in that ballpark according mm-hmm. to their numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, different people have different studies uh, and come up with different numbers. Yeah. And, and it, after you know, all, what you might also, I mean, I, I'm very much a, of a questioner, you know. So I, I would always question also, so what does dependence mean? Supposing you are dependent, but it's available. If I'm dependent on coffee in the morning, and, and by the way, a lot of people are, well, you know, what does that really mean? I just make sure to have coffee in the house. I don't think, you know, even if one is dependent, it doesn't necessarily have bad consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And according to the <clears throat> the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you, it has to cause impairment. It has to cause problems in your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you get rid of the drug laws, there are very few problems that are caused by drugs. You're so right. That's really true. Your main problem is escaping, you know, is hiding your use. And what that's what makes this really a, a difficult issue. Because in most states, you really do have to hide your use because the, the penalties can be quite severe. I'm lucky mm-hmm. to live in a state where that's really not the case. So since I really didn't fear any professional or social consequences, I did come out as a as a pot user. And that was the whole point of my book. I, it would not have been an effective or good book if I'd published it under a pseudonym. Since, you know, the whole mm-hmm. book is celebratory, it would have been absurd to hide who the person who was celebrating. Mm-hmm. And you're in New York, correct? Uh, New York State, yes. Yeah. And, you know, but even in New York until uh, very recently, uh, stop and frisk was very common. And, uh, you know, uh, young black people in particular were getting stopped and frisked. And then if uh, they had marijuana in their pockets, they were arrested for public display, which is a different law than possession. And Which is they appalling got because the only public display was the cop says... What's in your pocket? Show me your pocket, and which is illegal, by the way. You don't have to do that. But these kids don't know. They don't want to get shot. They they show them the pocket, and if there's a joint in there, well, then it's suddenly public display. It's outrageous. It's really, truly terrible to think of how many lives have been harmed by this. Um, it gets me really indignant. Um, so, but if it's not public display, people say, well, how can you come out and say, you know, you smoke pot? Aren't you worried about the law? And um, I certainly don't don't announce myself to my local authorities. You know, I don't come I go don't go to the the town and say this is what I do. However, if there was some busybody who says, Hey, she's talking about doing it all the time, she probably has some, why don't you go go and arrest her? This is what would happen. They'd have to bother by writing a a a warrant, you know, to come into the house and then they would find something. They would always find less than an ounce because I, I make sure of that. And the most they could do at that point would to give me a citation, which is a fine for $100. And that's been the law in New York State since 1977. So, you mm-hmm. know, the consequences aren't immense, but the social consequences and the professional consequences can be severe. And, of course, this public display business is sending, you know, has been sending hundreds of thousands of young people to jail. Mm-hmm. And yet, some there's some substances, as you were saying, we don't choose to treat that way. I mean, and look at alcohol. Well, I mean, there, there's the, the first substance. I can't tell you how, in the course of a single day, people will say to me happily, "Oh, I'm going to get so drunk, or I'm meeting my friends, we're really going to get drunk, or I love to go there and you know and really tie one on." And they do this in public, and they do this proudly as if this is some kind of wonderful thing that they do. And yet people who smoke pot, who tend to be a lot, <laughs> well, let's just say quieter when they're inebriated, um, mm-hmm. you know, they've got to sneak around and be ashamed. They wouldn't dream of, of, you know, announcing to their friends, oh, yes, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. No. Yeah, alcohol is up there on the scale of harmful drugs. It's a very harmful drug. 
uh, David Nutt, uh, in Great Britain, he was like their drug czar at one point. And, you know, he did this chart of the most harmful drugs, and alcohol was like way up there near the top. You know, marijuana was way near the bottom as the least harmful. There mm-hmm. was coffee and, uh, you know. Was, was coffee considered harmful then? Uh, coffee can be harmful. I mean, you know. But, you, you know, can... coffee has been rehabilitated lately, um, and it's actually very good for for you. If you don't, if they're saying there's like a sweet spot with coffee, three to four cups a day, you know, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. seems to be ideal. It actually improves your health. It reduces your um possibility of getting Parkinson's disease and so on. It's It's been very interesting to me. I mean, and, and you too, anybody who's lived a certain amount of time sees these medical flip-flops. And so mm-hmm. the fact that coffee is considered healthy uh, is almost as good as the fact that chocolate is considered healthy. So what's left? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's actually delightful to find these prohibited substances actually are good for you. And the other thing is, by the way, Mm -hmm. that they're finding that in some ways pot is considered healthy, too. And I don't only mean for treating certain conditions, but the very fact of smoking, which they thought would harm your lungs, in fact might even help your lungs. They, They hypothesize that the act of drawing it in and holding it is actually enlarging your, I don't know how to pronounce this word, Areoles, maybe. <laughs> anyway, the little the, the little cube. Yes, thank you. <laughs> as I was as I was talking, I knew that word was going to come out and hit me. <laughs> yes. So there is there is even a chance that it actually helps um, helps people breathe better. So that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that uh, remains controversial because there's this other old study out there that says that it is bad for your lungs. Um, I, I still tell people, you know, you, you're probably better off vaporizing or eating it, and I don't care so much to tell people to draw burning vegetable matter into their lungs. Um, I think it's still a little up up in the air, you know. It probably is. You know, obviously, I, I've... Uh... I'm selecting the kind of research that that I will remember or that I'll talk about. But I I was so tickled by that one, that's all, because they, they all went into the study, you know, thinking the more you smoke, the worse your lungs will be. And, and they came out and they said, mm, well, we think now that it really might even have a protective effect. So, but yes, that's only one study. And, it, and certainly, you know, there are, there have been other studies. Yeah, I haven't been convinced uh, uh, one one side of the fence or the other yet, so I'm still sitting on the fence and stuff. So I tell but you people, know that eating it, I think eating it is is um, potentially more dangerous because you can eat too much, so much more easily. You know, there's story after story we hear about people who took a little bit and it didn't work and they took a little bit more and nothing was going on and then, you know, and then they eat the whole thing and then they're completely discombobulated and, and rather unhappy for, you know, many, many hours. And that never happens if mm-hmm, you smoke. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to be experienced and know what you're doing. I yeah. mean, you know, back and in, you also would need to know what you were smoking because it, since there's such since it's illegal in almost everywhere, there's such variability. And you know, when you you're cooking, and you need to use a fair amount anyway, that variability can really be disastrous. Well, you know, that is the, the other argument for full legalization of everything because then you know what you have. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have pharmaceutical-grade pure heroin, you know how much of a dose to give yourself. If you get heroin on the street, you don't know what the, the strength of it is. It's very hard to tell, you know, how much of a dose to give yourself. It's very problematic. And, you know, again, with ecstasy, they're selling all kinds of fake pills and calling them ecstasy and uh, if you get it in the drugstore over the counter, the druggist, you know, is there to do the quality control. You know what you're getting. It's much safer. Yep. You're absolutely right. Sure. So, well, I was mentioning David Nutt uh, and his studies. Um, and, you know, alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs known to man. It's the severe impairment of your, uh, you know, your motor skills. So you just can't perform, uh, you know, anything well. You go staggering down the street, you slur your words, 
try to drive a car and you'd crash into a tree or into a, path, a pedestrian and kill somebody. It's terrible on your motor skills. Large doses of alcohol are bad for your health. All around, um, you know, alcohol is really dangerous. Um, Probably, but mm- like these other drugs, it, it does provide an immediate, you know, lift. And it, as opposed to marijuana, it does seem to make people a lot more convivial. I mean, I think it's a much better, you know, a little, a little alcohol is better for a party, I would say. Yeah, it just loosens people up in a, in a in a more direct way. Whereas I think that smoking or any any kind of use of cannabis might make people more introspective. Let's just say. I wonder if that's true. Um, I would actually. There's probably been studies on that. Um, you know, the other problem with alcohol, besides it disinhibits you so that you can talk more, it also disinhibits you so you're more likely to get into a fight. That's um, true. That's certainly true. We know that. You you know, you don't find that sort of behavior going on when people have smoked pot. At absolutely, you're you're completely right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I heard a terrible statistic. Oh no, this really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But it was since I started, I had to go ahead now. But it, it it was actually about the amount of violence that domestic violence that happens after after football games when the home team or the team you're rooting for has lost. Apparently, there's a huge domestic violence spike there. But it's not wholly unrelated to alcohol because I'm sure those guys that are watching the football games are drinking beer. So when their team loses and they drink beer, they get so upset, they they bash their wives, which is amazing, horrifying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So should we have a national prohibition of football? (laughs) No, listen, life is risk. I mean, there are things that, you know, that you do, that you enjoy doing that may have a little risk to them, and, you know, you, it's not going to stop you. I, I mean, uh, riding a bicycle in New York City is risky, right? I mean, but some people do it, and, some, and it, there are many, many good things about it, but it's, still, it's taking more of a risk than not getting on a bike. You driving can't live a life that's risk-free mm-hmm. anyway. Driving on autom- automobiles very high risk behavior, even when you're completely sober. It's the people are killed every day in automobile accidents. Yeah. Um, but nobody's proposing uh, prohibition of the automobile. Um, it's it's not practical to go back to the horses right now, um, even so though it would be safer. So, what do you think? What state do you live in? I'm in New York City. Oh, you're in New York City. Okay. You know, I am corresponding, of course, by email to a fellow who lives in Alabama where they have very strict prohibitions there on pot. Um, mm-hmm. So somebody like that, you know, you can't come out in a state like that when you could get a $6,000 fine and a one-year jail sentence for any mm-hmm. amount that's found. So what mm-hmm. what do you think the best thing to do if if you're in a situation like that? Where 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 does somebody like that go? To the state legislature? Do they start lobbying? Do they write petitions? Um well, when you ask where they go, I was going to say they need to move to the state of Washington or Colorado. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Have you been to those states? Um I was no, I have not ever been to either of those states. Okay. So I went when I had a book tour, and I was reading not only at bookstores but also at dispensaries in Washington and in Colorado. And it's a wonderful feeling to be there. It, 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 wow! I mean, just to walk into a store and see all the different strains laid out, and to have you know a knowledgeable person explaining what this one does and what that one does, it was really a treat for me. So very, mm-hmm, a very mm-hmm. different experience. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the states with medical marijuana, well, California, at least, I know pretty well. Um, in Berkeley, they have the same thing with their dispensaries for their medical marijuana. They have them all figured out this strain is good for this, this strain is good for that. And, you know, my uh, colleague, Amanda Ryman, uh, if you know her at all, she's done a lot of studies about marijuana as the exit drug it's the drug that can get you off of alcohol it can what, a get you wonderful, off of what a wonderful idea marijuana as an exit drug and that's what you're claiming that's what you do in your counseling too right for some people yeah for, mm-hmm. uh, for a number of people that is a better choice for them 
as I say, ours is a, is, we have a harm reduction program. So mm-hmm. we uh, have everything, including the kitchen sink there. Uh, any strategy that can help you be safer. You know, some people decide to stop drinking when they're out and just drink at home because they get in trouble, they get in fights when they're out. Some people switch to marijuana. Some people don't like to drink at home. They like to drink when they're out, but they want to drink less, so they count their drinks. Um, they get strategies to slow down, alternate with non-alcoholic things. We have you know, just tons of strategies. Marijuana is one that some people use, and um, it's not a lot of people use it, but I'd say, geez, we just did the, we just did the survey and I think a quarter, maybe 25% or there about 30% said cannabis was something that they used to avoid alcohol. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It was actually... Her name is Amanda uh, Ryman. Yes, okay, yes. good. Interesting to know about that. And she works, she teaches for the School of Social Work in Berkeley, um, and she's also working for the Drug Policy Alliance. Oh, great. That's a wonderful organization. Do you think so? Anyway, so tell tell me where you are personally with all this. Do you not use alcohol or do you use just a little bit? Where do you stand here? Okay, all the drugs that I like are legal. I don't like any of them. It's just a, it's just a coincidence. It just happens to be that all the drugs I like are legal. I like caffeine. Um I can I'm physically dependent on caffeine. I will have withdrawal if I don't drink coffee. So I know that's the only substance on which I'm physically dependent. <laughs> and I drink way more than the two or three cups a day that you that you know you put in the healthy range. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, uh, caffeine can be problematic if somebody that's not used to it drinks ten cups of coffee well, and sure. tries to drive their car and their hands are shaking. You know they can. Uh, you know it can be problematic too. It's not problematic for me mainly because. It's legal. Nobody's going to put me in prison for drinking 10 cups of coffee in a day. Uh, Nobody's going to force me into rehab and say, you know, you have to start believing in God now to to take away your coffee addiction. Um, (laughs) Yes, that's the problem, isn't it? (laughs) It's affordable. You know, my... I actually, my favorite uh, coffee is actually the cheap generic instant one, which I like better than the others. Oh, my so. goodness. And in this world of, of coffee snobbism and in New York City where, like, oh, I, wow, people must really tease you about that, liking instant coffee. Well, I, I tease them. I like the instant. I don't just like the instant. I like the key food brand, generic, that they sell in the, <laughs> you know, it's the generic one. I say it's the best one because... Usually I like to drink my coffee uh, room temperature. I don't like it hot. And this is this dissolves properly in tepid water. The others won't dissolve. So it's like, this is the best one. And it costs uh, like $5 uh, for eight ounces, which is like, uh, you know, a month's supply or something. I don't, you know, I don't have to rob little old ladies to buy my coffee. If I had to, you know, if if coffee was illegal... If I had to, uh, you know, spend a hundred dollars to get a teaspoon of coffee, I would be in the same position as you know people using heroin uh, in New York City. It would be a severe financial drain. You know, I would not be able to afford it on my salary. I don't know what I would do. I wouldn't be able to quit. Would I have to go out and rob people to buy my coffee? And you know, yeah, coffee has, yeah, yeah, and that would be the problem. And coffee so, has been uh, illegal uh, during a couple times in history. Um, in Turkey, under Murad IV, um, it was illegal. Um, he actually, if you found people drinking coffee, uh, he, uh, the sultan, uh, the, whatever he was, the, the ruler, had people sewn up in a bag and thrown in the river. My goodness, the that's death, quite a penalty. Gee whiz. So penalty for coffee, yeah, yes. Amazing, wow. But opium yeah. was fine. You, opium was not a, You could have smoke. You could, well, they weren't smoking yet, but they, you could eat all the opium you wanted, and that was fine. But if you drank a cup of coffee, that was death penalty. And this is in what year? Uh, it's about 1500. Wow, that's interesting. Really interesting. Coffee could... Death penalty, but opium, okay. So it's just just one of those things. It's very good to have a historical perspective, you know? 
Um, because I'm sure most people don't have a clue about that. The other interesting thing about coffee is that it led to, the, the drinking of coffee made people want to think hard and talk a lot. It led to these coffee houses that were an explosion mm-hmm. of ideas in 17th century mm-hmm. Britain. So, And a mm-hmm. lot of people contrast that with the fact that before that, a lot of people were drinking beer pretty regularly because the water was often foul. So they would drink, just to get liquids in them, drink a lot of beer. They were sort of mildly buzzed, but maybe you know a little compromised all of their lives. So these mm-hmm. things are fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, there was also uh, legislation, I believe, in the Great Britain against those coffee houses because uh, one of the kings was afraid that they were going to overthrow the government if they had That's all these right. ideas in their head. That's right. And that was a- that was actually most uh, historians believe that's also why coffee was outlawed in Turkey was because the ruler was worried about revolution and people overthrowing him, and he didn't want people gathering in coffee houses and talking about you know seditious ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody nobody claims that <laughs> potheads are going to overthrow the government because they probably wouldn't really get it together. Um, certainly not when they're stoned. Um, so that that's one reason why it's a pretty benign sort of thing. I wonder though about that. <clears throat> you know, when Nixon was passing the drug laws, I mean the potheads the potheads were very politically active against the Vietnam War. I don't think it necessarily stops you from, you know, being politically active or seditious. It certainly was seditious in Nixon's mind. All these goddamn hippies want to, you know, stop us from fighting the communists. We can't have that. We have to have drug laws and put them all in prison. Yeah, well, he's accountable for a lot. But yes, I guess I was being flippant there. Uh, certainly, you know, I mean, people who use cannabis in whatever way, whether they're eating it, vaping it, or smoking it, have as far range of political activities and interests and cultural activities and professions as, as anybody else in, in the world. So certainly, you know, it hasn't stopped me from being an ardent environmentalist, let's just say. I've, you know, I've... I've been in many marches. My son and I were arrested at the White House to protest the pipeline. You know, obviously, I, I'm sort of active. I'm an activist, whatever I'm going to be doing. And right now, it seems to be I'm advocating for legalization of pot. Um, yeah. I guess I hadn't been, you know, um, before this book was published. So I, I really have had a new life since April 20th, which was when the book was published. And the book got a fair amount of media attention. And, um, you know, suddenly I've been asked to write for cannabis websites and so on. And it's been really quite a change for me. I used to be a fairly quiet... I, my my life was pretty quiet. I wrote fiction. I mean, I still do. And I, I edit books, and I still do. But now I have this... I feel it's a sort of larger role, and whatever I can do to help this effort of legalization, I will do. Um, So when I wrote this book, Just Say Yes, a marijuana memoir, I thought that it would be a way, uh, just yet another way, another voice in the conversation here. Uh, And that was my motivation. And that, as I say, has changed my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, there's another interesting thing about cannabis, because we were talking about who uses it. And you know, does it affect them as political activists um, in the uh, in Persia and Turkey in that area? The people that used cannabis were the Sufis, the religious mystics. They tended to avoid the opiates, which were popular with everybody else in that area, and they really they went for the cannabis instead. So it fueled a lot of religious mysticism in that area and those sort of writings. Hmm. Good to know. No, that I did not know. Interesting. It's a real world. I mean, there's so much to learn and so much to to cover. Uh, the sweep of, you know, the things that are affected by cannabis is, is just extraordinary. I mean, first of all, there's the whole industrial uses of the plant, which, you know, as it turns out, it was the paper and the wood interests that was also very much behind getting cannabis labeled illegal because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it, the fiber is so useful. 
and um, mm-hmm. with, you know him. It used in Virginia, the initial colonists. It was the law that you had to grow hemp. That's how useful it was. So mm-hmm. things have certainly turned around since then. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's industrial uses, medical uses. There's a whole legal. There is the kind of historical background that you've been very good about, you know, sharing tonight. Um, so it's it's very very interesting to me the fact that there's so many different aspects. It's a whole marijuana world. Mm-hmm. And hemp paper is great. I used to work for the library, and some of the really old books were on hemp paper, and it it's doesn't very durable, tear, it right? doesn't crumble. Yeah, they, they, those books last forever. And you got the others on the pulp paper that are just all falling to pieces. I know. It's just astonishing. And they also say it might even be useful for climate change. It's apparently, a, you know, it's a real great carbon sink. And, of course, it grows everywhere. So it's, it's a very useful plant. Goodness, I can't think of another plant that has so many uses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to finish a- answering your question because you were asking me about my substance use. And I said, yeah, all the ones I like are legal and, you know, with uh, my work in needle exchange in various programs, I get really pissed off that my friends that liked other drugs were risking the, going to jail and, you know, getting put in prison if you liked heroin or something. And why should I be able to, able to enjoy my drugs and have no consequences? I, I'm very dependent on caffeine. Um, alcohol, I like to drink once a week. I drink uh, a lot. I drink a fifth of whiskey. I drink it at home. I watch movies. I go to sleep. I don't go out. I don't get in trouble. But I drink a lot on my one day to drink. One day Um, a week, huh? That is really uh interesting. But a fifth is, is, it is quite a lot, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about... 750 milliliters. Wow. (laughs) So what is your (laughs) drinking day? Is it always like a Saturday or a Sunday? It depends on what my work schedule is and my school schedule is. Um, so it might be a Saturday or, you know, it depends on what day I have off because I won't mm. drink if I have things scheduled the next day. Right, right. That is, you're really an unusual human being, honestly. You've surprised me several times tonight during this conversation, and that, that last nugget is really amazing to me. Well, you I mean, it, about it does take a certain amount much. of control to, 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 you know, to like it so much and to drink so much, but only one day a week. That's a very unusual story. Yeah, I used to drink about four times that much because I drink uh, like four days out of the week. But that was mm-hmm. getting me in all kinds of trouble because you know, it's too, of course. it messes up your body too much. And, you know, so I just had to make a change. And I said, well, once a week will work for me. And mm-hmm. that's, my, that's my harm reduction plan. It works for me. Uh, people in our organization, everybody has a different plan. So uh, that's uh, what it's all about. Are you um, frank with your clients about this? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm posting my drinks uh, every day on social media, uh, both uh, in private groups and in public groups. Uh, you can go on Twitter and uh, look at my Twitter feed, and, you know, every day, you know, it goes to 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 17 standard U.S. drinks in a fifth of whiskey. I can't believe it. I cannot believe this. This is just extraordinary. Extraordinary. Seventeen. So, like on a Saturday or a Sunday, you'd have seventeen. I mean, to me, mm-hmm. that would be like, I don't know, smoking a pound a day or something. That seems like a lot. But maybe, listen, I'm, I, I'm a person who can't really tolerate alcohol, so that's probably why I'm incredulous. But I think anybody would be a little bit surprised at seventeen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, I know some people that you know. I know people that uh, are severely dependent on alcohol that drink uh, 30 to 40 drinks in a day. Uh, oh, gosh. Gosh, I can't believe they're walking around. Well, listen, well they're not walking to... around. They're, <laughs> no, they're, they're not. They're very dependent. Uh, but, you know, some people, W.C. Fields uh, apparently went through two quarts of gin every day. <gasps> wow, yeah, yeah. And I heard that Nixon was qu- quite a drinker. Um, I, I forgot the amount, but it was it was quite a lot um, while he was a president, and that was part mm-hmm. of his problem. I mean, drinking made him paranoid. And my last drug, I like nicotine. Um, I used to be a cigarette smoker, 
but very dependent, but I quit that, and now I have the occasional cigar. Um, I haven't... Have I had one yet this year since January? Last year I had two uh, for the year. Uh, so <laughs> this is a very limited I, I thing. I would say that that was definitely nothing that you're dependent on. If you're having two cigars a year, no. But you like it, and you you know, and then you're enjoying it, and it's not harming you, and why not? Yeah, I must say, I think it's one of my prides as a mother that I've raised three children, and none of, and they do not smoke cigarettes. No. So that's that. I'm very happy about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, before the show started, we were talking a little bit, and you were saying you wondered where you fell on the scale of dependence or abuse or recreational use. Mm-hmm. And you know, ultimately, it comes down to uh, impairment. Is it getting in the way of anything? Um, and do you, do you feel that there's any impairment that's involved, or is it an enhancement for your life? Well, so it seems. I don't know quite how to judge it. How would somebody else judge it? I suppose if it prevented me from doing something that I would otherwise love to do. For instance, suppose, I mean, if it prevented me from traveling because I would, like supposing I had a chance to travel to Japan and stay there three weeks, and knowing I couldn't mm-hmm. smoke any pot in Japan, if I turned down the trip, I would say that, yeah, that was impairment. That would be a real shame. And I wouldn't. I would go, and I would not smoke for, for three weeks, and that would be okay. I'd miss it a bit, but I wouldn't be desperate. Um, mm-hmm. So does it impair? Does it in? I think Sometimes if I smoke before a social situation, it would make me more anxious or more nervous. So lately I've been getting a little smarter here (laughs) in my advanced age and um, avoid Mm -hmm. smoking, you know, in in situations where I'm going to be talking to strangers, let's say, you know. I don't want to worry about do they know, you know, can they smell it on my breath or am I being articulate? I think that uh, I'm probably not quite as sharp when I'm stoned. Often, you know, I've been doing these radio interviews, and often the interviewer will say right off the bat, well, are you stoned now? And of course I'm not, (laughs) and of course I wouldn't be. Uh, After all, it's my job as an advocate to to present the best possible picture, right? So I don't want Mm -hmm. to do anything that would get in the way of that. Um, Hard to say impaired. I don't really think so, Ken. I don't think I'm impaired. But I do think I'm dependent, you know. I make sure it's around. And um, I usually smoke every day, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting the way that the DSM defines dependence, you know, because um, you know, the, it, physical dependence is not is not necessary. It's not even... Um, uh, it's neither necessary nor sufficient um, because according to the, the the DSM, if you're in the hospital and they keep shooting you up with morphine because you have chronic pain until you know the chronic pain is gone, um, you know when the when the pain is gone, you have a physically you have tolerance and withdrawal to the morphine, but they don't say you're dependent because if they taper you down, you know you really don't know that you're being tapered down. And you don't go out seeking the drug after you leave the hospital when the pain is gone. Yeah. So, so they don't eat, you know, tolerance and withdrawal are ni- neither necessary nor sufficient uh, criteria for dependence on a substance, according to the DSM, according yeah. to the psych- psychiatrist. So what they really but there is certainly is, a psychological dependence. I mean, like I'm supposing I'm on a rough ride home from someplace, you know, it's night and it's raining and it's this. I definitely, when I get home, I want to relax with a joint. And I'm thinking of it, you know, on the last half hour, I think, oh, gosh, let me just get home already. This is terrible. And then I'll want to reward myself. So that, I think, is a psychological dependence. I'd be really upset if I came home and I didn't find anything in the jar. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know that you could qualify, though, uh, for – I don't think you would qualify for a diagnosis. I'm pretty sure – you know, if I'm diagnosing, no, you don't qualify for the diagnosis. <laughs> well, I'm glad, Dr. Of, Ken, you, you can be my diagnostician <laughs> in, in that regard. Or abuse. On the other hand, if you were uh, 
an engineer for the railroad, for the MTA here in New York City, and if you got stoned out of your mind before you went to drive a train every day, that would well, be you'd dependent. be foolish. You'd be a criminal. That's what you'd be. I mean, in in my eyes, you would absolutely be a criminal if you if you you know operated heavy machinery or you risked other people's lives because of you know because it made you feel good. Of course, that would be incredibly irresponsible, and that would be instead of you know harm reduction, it would be harm augmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you felt the need to do something like that, you just had to get high in the morning, well, yeah, you were very dependent, but you'd also be, you know, outrageously irresponsible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are talking about, you're talking about harm reduction, and a lot of people in, in the drug conversation are talking about responsible use. They're not talking about use or non-use. They're saying, what about, let's let's consider a new concept, responsible use. And I'm mm-hmm. I'm all with them. Mm-hmm. You know that makes sense to me. Mhm. And you know we find people can use uh, drugs responsibly regardless of what the drug is. Um, there are heroin users out there that use the heroin on the weekends. They don't use it during the week, um, and that's what they like. And you know, why should we you know condemn them? as horrible monsters, you know, they're they're no worse than people drinking coffee as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, I just don't know. I mean, I, I guess perhaps since I really don't know heroin users, either of the weekend sort or of the, you know, need four or five bags a day sort, I can't comment on that. You know, you you know those populations better than I do. It's I, I'm obviously, you know, of a, a fairly sheltered human being and since I know know it, you know it. It is a little scary to me that concept that you could shoot up on the weekend and be fine during the week, but you know you could just—it's just a prejudice, I guess. Well, I mean, well, it is. You know what? Um, you know, uh, the 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 most difficult drug to quit, um, according to all studies, is actually cigarette. I would and agree it's easier, with that. It, yeah. it is easier to quit heroin than to quit cigarette. And, yeah. you know, if you ever go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, um, you know, afterwards you see, you know, almost everybody's outside smoking cigarettes. It's like, you know, how can you quit the heroin and not quit the cigarette? Well, it's yeah. harder to quit yeah. the cigarettes. The biggest problem with be. heroin, the biggest problem, well, there's two problems. And the number one problem is because it is illegal. It's on the black market. The price is extremely inflated. It's very expensive to keep a heroin habit going in the U.S., even though the price is way down from what it was, you know, in the 70s or something. It's still a very expensive habit. Um, whereas in uh, Iran, <clears throat> I've read that it costs about the same as a pack of gum to buy heroin. But it's very cheap. I mean, it's very cheap to manufacture. If we made it legal, uh, over-the-counter available, you could probably support your heroin habit for a dollar a day even if you were severely dependent. Wow. I still wouldn't want it, though. I don't know the idea that people are nodding out. I, I mean, I would want it available by prescription for addicts. Let's just say that. I, I, I don't know if I'd really want it sold, you know, without a prescription. I think, I don't know. I, you know, I guess I'm revealing my limitations here. I think I'm such an <laughs> iconoclast, but the notion of heroin available everywhere does make me a bit nervous. Well, some people feel the same way. I mean, it's also, of all the opioids, uh, heroin has the most narrow therapeutic index, which, I mean, it's the easiest to overdose on. It's about three times easier to OD than morphine and, you know, like 30 times easier than OxyContin or something. So it is definitely, um, you know, that, that was one of the initial arguments for making it Schedule 1, but that that hasn't worked out well. At least it should be available by prescription, as it is in Switzerland, uh, I believe Great Britain, the Netherlands. Uh, they all have uh, prescription heroin programs there, and they work very well. Uh huh. Well, you know, obviously, you know, in many ways, the Europeans are, um, shall we say, much more advanced in certain areas than we are. And uh, that, you know, obviously, what's going on in Portugal is 
quite exciting and that must be you know that could be a good model for for the United States. I don't know if it's realistic to hope we're going to see that, but it's certainly something. We were discussing this before the the um the show about what well, why don't you explain mm-hmm. to your listeners what's going on in Portugal? Well, in Portugal all the drugs have been decriminalized and that's over 10 years ago, I think it's about 15 years ago now that they decriminalized everything. They stopped putting people in prison for using drugs, uh, possessing drugs, and the crime rates dropped. Um, I believe dependence uh, has dropped. Almost every drug-related problem has gone down since the decriminalization. Um, so it's worked out very well. Yeah, that's, um, that's just great. That's just a wonderful. That's just a wonderful thing to hear. And um, certainly, you know, after being decriminalized for a year in Washington State, um, the statistics are are very similar. There's much less abuse and there's much less underage use, and the whole thing seems to have been a big success in most ways. Um, Oh, there's there's something I need to ask you about or talk to you about. Um, UNGAS, the the UN something, United Nations something or other, Anyway, the, in 2016, they are reviewing all the drug policies, the United Nations drug policies. Uh, were you familiar with that? Not at all. What did you say? Oh, you what, what was the body within the United Nations? Um, did oh, you say Lord, UNICEF? I mean, Not, it couldn't be UNICEF. It's UNGAS, U-N-G-A-S-S. U-N-G-A-S-S. Okay. UNGAS 20... 16, and I forget what the acronym stands for. I only that's okay, remember that's the UN. Okay. I could go to acronymfinder.com and they will tell me. But that's that's interesting. No, I did not know that. Well, listen, you, you're quite a pro. You're really steeped in all this, and, and it's really been interesting talking to you and, and learning from your perspective, which is a bit broader than mine. You know, my my concentration is on marijuana. That's that's the only drug I use. It's the only drug I know. Um, and, you know, it's the spine of this memoir of mine. Um, but mm-hmm. it is it's, it's it's good for me to 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 see marijuana as just one of the banned substances that maybe shouldn't be banned, you know. And um, thank you for providing that perspective. Well, I was glad to do that. I just really want to encourage you, as an activist, to uh, get involved with UNGAS. Um, I was at the UN a couple months ago uh, with uh, the, uh, watching one of the. Uh, presentations of my uh my comrades here my colleagues uh in the fight um and i would encourage you to be involved in lending well how would i be involved well maybe after the show you'll tell me how to you'll send me something with some links or something and i'll send you an email uh I, i will get you connected with heather haas who is a lawyer who knows everything that's going on with all this, I will. Terrific. That would be uh, great. I, I'm really seeking opportunities for this. And I was really thrilled. Recently, Normal has asked me to do a book signing in Natick, Massachusetts, um, which is in the Boston area, with one of their chapters. So, sure, I'll go. I'll go with my books. I'm, I'm delighted that, you know, that I can be used in this way um, because we all want to feel useful. And, mm-hmm. you know... Um, I've always sort of wanted many, many people to read my novels, and my novels have been published, but they, I never really reached a very wide audience. So it, it's kind of nice for me to be reaching out in this very different way, not as a writer, but as an advocate, and, um, and seeing what I can do. So perhaps yeah. on that note, we can say goodnight. I see it's been yeah. almost an hour now. Yeah, we, we yep. Yeah. Well, it's been great to have you as a guest on the show, and I want to thank you for coming. And we're actually doing another show tomorrow morning, um, which is interesting because I, I haven't done any in uh, two months now. We've got two right in a row. Um, but Mark Lewis uh, from the Netherlands uh, will be talking about his new book, The Biology of Desire. He's a neuroscientist. will be very interesting. So we will see you all again tomorrow morning. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.